Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. In each episode, we'll take you behind the scenes of a true crime documentary or narrative feature. I sit down with the creative minds behind those films, and they answer the lingering questions you have about the stories you just watched. This week, we're talking with director and producer Erin Lee Carr. Her latest work is now streaming on Netflix, and it's called How to Fix a Drug Scandal. It's about the investigation of two chemists who work for Massachusetts State Drug Testing Labs. For nearly a decade, they tampered with evidence in tens of thousands of cases against people accused of drug possession and trafficking. I was smoking at the lab, smoking at home. I actually smoked in the evidence room. I was totally controlled by my addiction. At these drug labs, a single chemist can do thousands of cases a year. It wasn't really clear the extent to which things had gone wrong. She didn't realize how many people it would harm. And it turns out it's not just one, but two chemists. This was one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in the history of Massachusetts. All these convictions needed to be wiped away. We are investigating somebody who's tampered with evidence. The scope of this could be very large. It's amazing the ripple effect of a single person's act. Erin Lee Carr, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the documentary. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. I would love to know your intersection with this story. I have watched some of your other documentaries, full disclosure. Um, I love all your work, (laughs) and I love this one. It's a local story for me. I live in New Hampshire, so this news was very familiar to me. Uh, But the deep story of it, I think, is fascinating. It is serious. It has large questions around the criminal justice system at the center of it. But what is your intersection with the story? Why did you make this documentary? Um, so I'm so glad to hear that. You're my prime audience. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that there's been a, a tendency in my work to really um, move towards tabloid, move towards these big sort of national cases. Um, but, you know, as somebody that works in the criminal justice space, I, you know, I had kind of a a sit down or a talk with myself and said, um, am I putting work out into the world that is meaningful? Am I trying to um, change or um, be a part of national conversations? You know, it's about wrongful convictions and sort of what is it like when the system does not protect you? And so this was, you know, a pretty targeted, direct sort of way that I wanted to get into a criminal justice space that had a lot of lasting implications. And the sort of the cherry on the top for me specifically is it's really a story about drug addiction. And I have been, you know, really lucky and really fortunate to be out about my sobriety. I'm somebody who's my life was saved by sobriety. I feel so lucky um, to be a part of that club. Um, but I also kind of understand what addiction looks like. And so really being a part of discussions surrounding empathic portraits of addiction. So the documentary centers, at least initially, on the story of Sonia Farrick. And you spend quite a bit of time focusing on her life before this scandal. She was a high achiever in high school. She has a seemingly close-knit, extremely functional family. I'm curious why you thought it was so important to include this very full portrait of a person that maybe news consumers, especially in Massachusetts, saw a very different side of. 
Yeah, I think that I don't want to call anybody out or sort of, I, I want to speak specifically to my own work, but I, I found that some of the reporting on her was pretty one-dimensional. I think it's really uh, easy to paint her as the drug-addled chemist, as you know, as corrupt, as evil, but we are only as evil as our circumstances allow us to be. And uh, I think that I have a genuine sort of inflection point of what why do people do the things that they do? And I often think it's not about the day that we commit the crimes. It's about all the days that came before it. And I think that that is what, you know, I, this is uh, in a long uh, running tradition of mine. Like I love true crime. I love making things about crime. I think it's really, um, it's, a, it's an incredible job, but with that comes great responsibility. And so I really want to be thinking of every single person as just that, a person. It was interesting to me that she was such a rising star as a young person, star athlete, you know, had been the center of news stories as a kid when she played on the boys football team. And then, you know, her achievement sort of took her to this, you know, STEM science field. But she ended up working in, I think, what you lay out very convincingly are pretty awful conditions, you know, no ding on the state of Massachusetts and like the way that they maybe intended to run their labs. But you really lay out a very convincing portrait that this is not a great environment that is conducive to healthy habits. It's like a sweatshop of, you know, single task, repetitive motion, right? Yeah, I mean, and you, you're so lovely, but you say no ding on them, but I say ding, <laughs> ding, ding. Like we'll get there is a really, uh, <laughs> I, I thought it's, it's a very deeply problematic situation to put someone in. Um, you know, I think that it's uh, the Massachusetts Drug Lab, um, you know, it, it was really underfunded. And this is somebody that, yes, was Sonia was high achieving and, uh, you know, had a great sort of high school and uh, collegiate career, but, you know, struggled with mental health issues like we all do is really a universal. And when she reached adulthood, um, she was searching for something that would would make her feel less invisible. And I, you know, I understand that. I just I understand like drugs you know, especially when you first start doing them, it, it seems like the solution. And yet it is it will only get worse. She's so candid, both in the footage you have of her on the stand and also in her interviews talking about that moment where she knew she crossed the Rubicon. One day I just decided to try a little bit. I was alone. People had gone out to lunch. It was in liquid form, so I used a pipette. It gave me the desired effects. It gave me energy. I felt amazing. I didn't wish it, but it gave me the pep I was looking for. Can you just talk about that? You know, as somebody who talks about your sobriety, I'm hoping, hoping you're comfortable just sort of talking about what it was like to capture that on film. Somebody like explicitly being able to pinpoint the very moment where they made a choice and their life changed forever and really altered the course of the lives of thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, well said. It, it, it was it's pretty incredible. So um, in 2015, there um, Sonia sat for something called the grand jury and 
she was given immunity and said, you know, if you tell the whole story. And so we had these like page hundreds of pages where basically it was a confession. And that's what really drew me to this story. Um, and of course, that there's no there's no recordings of that because it's a grand jury. It's sealed. And so I was left as this filmmaker. Like, what do I do? How do I bring this material alive? And so I ended up, we ended up, um, you know, which is pretty in vogue now, but we ended up recreating it and oh. uh, really, uh, you know, thinking about who Sonia was and what she was doing when she did that. And so I think that it, it's going, it's going into the discussion surrounding how and why do people start these things? Uh, because we know that it can only end poorly. Um, and then, you know, getting up to the point where, you know, she goes from liquid meth to fentermine to cocaine to crack cocaine. And yeah, I mean, it's that's just sort of an unbelievable part of it. One of the things that makes it so striking as that story is unspooling all the things that she tried and then did. And she gets to the point where she's actually, you know, cooking crack rocks in the office at her job. Um, uh, one of the reasons that really hits home as a viewer, especially for me, is because you also have access and you interview her family members, her mother and sister. Some of these details they weren't privy to um, for a long time, but then they really share what their experiences learning this about their loved one. And uh, that's really affecting. I'm wondering what it was like to talk with them. Yeah, I think that it's so important. And I have so much gratitude towards um, Sonia's family for for not just doing off the records, but sitting down with me and participating. Um, they, they felt that they were incredibly maligned by the media, specifically in terms of who Sonia was, this sort of one-dimensional portrait. So they were very distrustful and it took a lot of sort of talking it through. And I think it really helped um, that I am a sober person, that I am an out sober person. uh, And that I, you know, I really said that this is not going to be that sort of same story. Um, But, you know, I I think it, it was so sad, if that makes sense, like to sit here, you know, with her mother and her mother just, you know, Linda kind of, felt mystified. Like, how did we get here? I tried to do my best. Um, You know, she's a really, you know, Sonia was a really good kid. She played football. And there was just this, um, this sort of aura of disbelief and surrealism that permeated the entire discussion. I I just, it's all, all of my stuff is always about the ripple effects. What does, what happens when one crime takes place and how many people does it affect? And, you know, how to fix a drug scandal is the epitome of that because it's not just the people at the wrongful uh, end of the convictions, but it's, it's the family members. It's every single person who touched this story that sort of deal with it on a daily basis. And this is a, you know, it's a story that was largely forgotten. I think in the Trump bubble, you know, there are these crazy stories that go viral. And this, there was some reason why this um, story faded from the sort of the national conversation. And that's why I love documentaries. Like I've taken a look at all of your other episodes and there's so many crime cases that it's so good to sort of explore. And like, that's why I'm so lucky to be working because yes, that there's journalism and I feel so grateful that there's journalism, but there's also these like um, many years later deconstructing sort of what happened here because there are real villains, a part of this case that have largely Mm -hmm. gotten away with it. And, you know, I always want to be careful about sort of what I say, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I wanted to hold power to account. 
Well, um, before we talk about Chris Foster, who I think of was one of the villains in the story, um, I first want to talk about a, a different lawyer, one who I think is just an extraordinary character. And I feel like I could watch a whole series, you know, multi-season, multi-part series about him. And that's Luke Ryan, the defense attorney, who becomes a very central character in the story because he's basically a crusader for clients who have been convicted based on this lab work and he is relentless and he is dogged and he is so unbelievably empathetic. What was it like interviewing him, interacting with him? Is is what you see is what you get with this guy? Well, I think that's uh, that's a beautiful thing to say. And I think that this, uh, this series is, um, in the most professional way, a love letter to lawyers. I think that they are the protector of our rights. And there are bad lawyers. There are uh, lawyers who might not give um, a damn, but that is not Luke Ryan. This is a, a small town lawyer that did uh, sort of criminal proceedings that you know aren't going to maybe make the paper. And this is somebody who cares a lot about uh, about everybody in our society. And uh, you know, I think that it was very funny to sit down with Luke uh, because so that it's it's very hard to make a um, a show about lawyers because every lawyer thinks about what they're about to say before they say Mm -hmm. it. And it was a weird couple of first interviews because he cares so much about the story, but he was so inside of it, if that makes any sense, that it's it's sometimes really hard to translate. Like, I often see my job as a translator, these sort of dense legal cases, and how do I uh, make it so that everybody watching Netflix understands sort of this legal jurisdiction or this situation? Um, But yeah, I had to interview Luke like five times. (laughs) I have a question about one of the sort of moral quandaries that uh, Luke Ryan faces and that I think as a viewer, I know I grappled with. Um, So Sonia Farrick's prosecution was potentially exculpatory for his clients, his, you know, one or more of his clients. And so he is like seeking material from her prosecution from the state that would be that would help his clients in their cases. One of those pieces of material was her basically her medical records around her psychology appointments and her psychiatric, you know, her mental health care. I understood why that would be important, but I also understood that that must have been a very difficult thing for him to decide to go after. We see how empathetic he is, and yet this is really key to kind of a greater justice in his mind. What did you think about that? I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. This was a part of many, many, many conversations that my producer and I had, because what we're talking about here is Sonia Farrick's private therapy records. Um, the And it discloses when she started using, how much she was using uh, exactly. And it, it, it basically creates a timeline so we understand um, how rampant the drug use was. Now, I am somebody who is in therapy. I'm sure my therapist wrote notes of our sessions together. I would, uh, I would, feel insane if somebody used those in a um, in a case against me to support uh, support a claim that I did something wrong. I know that Luke Ryan struggled with that. And so then I had this secondary sort of like, well, this is a primary document that I have access to that goes to state of mind of a main character. What do I do? 
And I also knew that Sonia's family, that's like, this is what made them feel crazy. It's not just that, and I don't want to speak for them, but, um, you know, it's not just that she lost her job and her sort of reputation was mired, but that her own private um, relationship and thoughts about her relationships and thought about thoughts about substances were disclosed to the public. But this is what happens. Um, there was, I believe there was a cover-up. There was a cover-up in evidence. Um, there was a complete sort of uh, a goal for a timeline not to emerge of how long this person was using drugs. It's almost as if this is the action that had to be done, uh, that we that Luke Ryan had to use the mental health worksheets because they had not respected the Brady laws. They had not respected the exculpatory evidence. Um, and that, I mean, if I were Sonia and Sonia's family, like, I would be mad at these prosecutors. There was a way to have this discussion that would not have included deeply, deeply private therapy records. And so it's all a bit of a mess. But so you see in the film, you see these sort of snippets. They're called mental health worksheets. And I have a I have a bulk of them. And I just ultimately, I did not feel comfortable having them be a primary document because um, I, I just thought it would be unethical. So another huge part of this documentary focuses on a case that was more high profile locally. I mean, for those who don't live in New England, uh, the Annie Dukin case in her lab on the eastern side of Massachusetts was a huge scandal because it really involved her instead of whether or not the work she was doing could be disputed because she was under the influence of drugs. She lied. She just pretended to conduct these thousands and thousands of of tests on controlled substances. Um, But you, in some ways, draw differences between her case and Sonia's case and in some ways draw parallels. And I'm wondering how you slice that. How are those cases different and how are they not so different? In in a way, Annie Dukin was kind of like the B storyline because one, it had been discussed. And two, to me, it was a bit less complex and I, I think one of the only reasons why that storyline works and it fits inside the show is we were able to talk to George Papachristos. Mm-hmm. And he was the DA at the time. He had never talked about um, his involvement or talking with Annie Dukin. He was incredibly uh, resistant, didn't even want to get on the phone with me. Uh, and, you know, I, um, from the bottom of my heart, you know, every single person who agrees to even do off the records with me, I'm so thankful for because it's adding to my knowledge about the case and will ultimately, that will show up and be representative in in the show, in the film. And so it became a larger part of the story really because um, I was able to speak one of the, to one of the key players, George Papachristos. So I have a question about Chris Foster. She is the prosecutor who committed blatant Brady violations in lying to the court about having turned over all of the documents, the lab documents that were in Sonia's car, plus these other records. You have a bunch of people on record in this documentary saying that she was green, that maybe she didn't know she was doing. I found myself wondering if it was her greenness or her having been directed to obstruct in this way. I'm curious to know where you land on that. Putting me on the spot. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm so nervous about, like, I literally feel myself sweating because, like, lawyers sue people all the time. So, okay, what it's am your I... opinion. I know, but, like, <laughs> they don't care. Um, all right. So, you know, I, I, this is a great question. And I, I feel a lot of conflict about it because, 
you know, I was not able to get on the phone with Chris. Um, her, uh, her lawyers met with my co-producer. Um, I, I, you know, they mainly wanted to like sort of fact check some things, but they, they only saw that it would be a disservice to speak to me in any way. Uh, and so I think that there, um, I think there are two plausible things that could have happened. One, that she was uh, overrun because at the, the attorney general's office at the time that she worked there was, uh, you know, was receiving very high volume. And two, there could have been, hey, keep this buried um, and we don't want to look at this. So like just sort of play, play dumb. And, uh, you know, I think that's why I love the sort of um, that we have this court audio from the Judge Kerry hearings because, you know, you can sort of see the judge and the everybody inside the room really trying to work out which one of these two things it is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I guess I still feel uncertain about what it is. But I, I do feel certain that this is really about what does prosecutorial misconduct mean and what exactly happened in this case. And I think, you know, some people might be like, hey, you know, they like, you know, they just didn't turn over some documents. Like, what is the sort of big deal? Um, you try spending two years of your life in jail when you should have been out based on a chemist doing your drug analysis while high. And you, like, you tell me, you know, were those two years worth it because they didn't turn over paper? Like, that is such total bullshit. And I think that it's, um, it's a system that is designed to protect people like prosecutors and see defendants as completely disposable. It's not like she made a mistake and thought she turned everything over but hadn't. I mean, the court found that she perpetrated a, quote, fraud on the court, which I know is a legal term, but essentially means she lied. She said, I've turned over everything, and she hadn't, and she knew that she hadn't, and her office knew that she hadn't. I found that, like, particularly egregious. Um, But it, it really, but to me, that said more about that she was the scapegoat. She was the obvious scapegoat. You do not you know, do your own thing as a prosecutor, as an AG. And the fact that Chris Foster and Anne Kaczmarek were the only people that, quote, participated in the fraud upon the court, like that also smells to me. That just doesn't make sense. And so I think Chris, specifically because she was new and green and, you know, wrote that really weird letter where she said, I have, upon review of all the documents, everything has been turned over. And obviously we know now that these things called the mental health worksheets had not been turned over. And I just think that it just goes deeper than these two women, but they were easy for the AG's office to, um, you know, to sort of to call out because they no longer worked there. So, Aaron, one of the things that you do in the documentary is you focus on a couple of people who've been affected by all that's going on with these labs, by the state's misdeeds in terms of withholding this evidence. And can you talk a little bit about the Rafael Rodriguez story, Luke Ryan's client that he was fighting for for so long? He ended up dying of an overdose while he was sort of in this limbo period created by these broken systems. What was that like to put in the film, to talk to Luke Ryan about, just to sort of track that story? So uh, Rafael Rodriguez was a uh, a man that, you know, was really loved by his family, uh, you know, was an immigrant, was somebody that struggled with drug addiction, but, you know, was happily married, had two kids and was embroiled in this drug lab scandal. And, you know, Luke Ryan, the lawyer that we've been talking about, really saw this case as, you know, this is this can help get Rafael Rodriguez out of jail. 
And there was this incredible moment where the criminal justice system said, you know, there's enough here and uh, we're going to let these drug lab defendants, as they were called, out on bail. But they were out on bail with the threat of the legal system was still going to follow them. And so there's this really um, there's this, you know, this pocket of time where you know, Raphael didn't know what to do. Was he going back to jail or was he going to be able to live his life? And there was, you know, it's almost as if the threat or the specter of continued imprisonment, it was too much for him to bear. And so this is a family where you can really see the ripple effect. So I called 911 and um, when I called 911, you know, I gave him my address. I said what was going on, that I was doing compressions already. And, you know, the ambulance came in, they took over, and I just went to the porch and I kneeled down and I looked up into the sky and I said, just give me strength, that's it. I saw it as this sort of core emotional moment of the series that this is not just about the people that, um, you know, perpetrated um, and, you know, did the drugs, because I think that when you're, you know, cold pitching this and telling people about it, it's about, you know, Sonia doing the liquid meth and that it's this crazy ride and something happened here. But baked in here is this family fable of tragedy. It's also really tragic just to hear about these defendants' experiences when they get out of prison. And we also hear about some of Sonia's experience when she gets out of prison. Why did you want to include that? Yeah, I mean, I I have a lot of feelings that I try to uh, keep to myself about the criminal justice system, about uh, prisons. I think that, you know, I think it's really scary the fact that when you have served your time as an individual, you get out and it's harder for you to get a job. It's harder for you to um, to drive a car, to have car insurance because you need a job in order to pay for that. And so there is this sort of collateral damage that every single person faces when they get out of prison. And I think a lot of people would say, yeah, you do the crime, you do the time. And this is a part of it. Sort of this is a sort of um, society watching you because of what you did. And I just know so many people through my work, through my own sort of personal life that you know, the fact that the criminal justice system follows you around is um, is a really scary part of it. And with Sonia, I think that there is, um, you know, there's a tendency to, um, you know, that we don't want to feel bad for the perpetrator. She did it. She knew what she was doing was wrong. And she, you know, tons of convictions were thrown out as a, a part of this. But, you know, you imagine waiting at the bus stop in the freezing cold, trying to make your way to your parole officers so you can pee inside a cup in front of somebody uh, in order to um, to stay out of jail. Like I, that sounds that sounds not good to me. And I don't care who you are, what you did, um, that I, I think the system is so punitive and it was important on all sides to examine, you know, sort of what happens in real time. You interview so many people in this documentary, but one person you don't get on the record on camera is Sonia herself. What would you have wanted us to see you talk about with her if you had been able to get her on camera? Um, you know, I, I think I was able to sit down with her and spend 70 minutes. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to I don't really want to talk specifically about the case when we sit down. It's more about like, you know, what does your life look like now? What do you dream about? Um, 
what are things that you that you wanted to do that you can't do? And what are these sort of missed opportunities? And so um, what I really wanted to telegraph is that um, addiction is not the people that we always think it's going to be. Um, and I think that Sonia is a very clear cut example of that. Like she never thought her life was going to go like this and that she was going to harm people. The only person she thought she was harming was herself. And so it was really about sort of understanding, um, you know, why people get addicted to things, what happens and why people lie, lie over the course of their addiction and how these things tend to spiral. Um, and so ultimately, I believe that we were able to really telegraph that inside the show because we had her sort of her grand jury transcripts. But, you know, I don't know what she'll what she'll think and if she'll watch it. I mean, there's this moment where we have this this footage of her playing. Um, she was on the the boys football team and she was somebody that you know wanted to play football like the boys and she was the first girl on the football team and there's this sort of glint in her eye and she's smiling and she's you know like you know she said you know I like to I like to I like to do it I like to be one of the boys and it would just to me always I felt a lot of solidarity in that moment as a female director in a very male dominated world of like you know you you just want to challenge yourself and I really wondered what it would have been like had Sonia not worked in that lab and had, you know, basically unfettered access to drugs of every type uh, under the sun. Uh, that's not excusing the behavior, but I, I just think that so many things had to happen to create this sort of tragic circumstance. She liked the hits, right? That's mm -hmm. what she said when she was a kid? Yep. She liked the, the hits of football. Mm -hmm. I just like to hit and everything. Mm -hmm. well, when you say you like to hit, uh, how did you know you liked to hit before you started playing football? I don't know. I like beating up on my sister a little bit. You know, I didn't give her black eyes, but, you know, just have a little fun with it. So my final question for you is, you know, this is the kind of documentary people who love true crime will watch it. People who are interested in issues around criminal justice will watch it. And I think people who are interested in reform will want to watch it. What are you hoping people will take away, no matter why it is that they first hit play on your film? Yeah, I mean, I think that what I felt so lucky to do was in episodic structure, it's it's almost as if you can talk about so many different things. It's like, you know, I can talk about prosecutorial misconduct. I can talk about female ambition. I can talk about deceptiveness. Um, and so all of these sort of themes came together to create this portrait. And, you know, I really want us to have a hard look at... Um, at the drug industrial complex. I think there's been so many series that have, you know, have been done on the war on drugs and we're still here. Uh, yes, we have moved away from, you know, putting people in jail for low level marijuana offenses, but I, I just think we have so far to go in terms of understanding the nature of addiction, understanding why people use and sell drugs. And I really want us to continue to stop throwing addicts in jail. And what does it mean to be a nonviolent offender? You know, my film is a part of the conversation that's doing this. So one, I want you to like, you know, feel like the detective. And I think that's how we created it um, with our editors, Ben Gold and Alexis Johnson. Like the audience is um, the person that is putting all of these pieces together one after another. So you're left with this like, wait, sort of what just happened, but you have all the facts. But also, I, I mean, I, I deeply hope that change happens, but you know, it, it's just so hard. And it's almost as if the criminal justice system is just, uh, it just ignores change and kind of goes along with what it wants to do. I mean, it seems sort of, what's it called? Um, 
it's just, it's like a bit like Teflon, like all these sort of these damning portraits of abuse sort of just bounce off. Uh, when are we going to demand change? Well, Erin Lee Carr, the documentary is How to Fix a Drug Scandal. I found it engrossing, fascinating. I really think it's a must watch. It was right in my wheelhouse. I think it will be in a lot of people's wheelhouses. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. It's a deep joy and I'm proud of it. And I really love talking about it. And thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. We've reached the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much to Erin Lee Carr. Erin has two documentaries now streaming on HBO. I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter, and At the Heart of Gold, Inside the USA Gymnastics Scandal. Be sure to check those out. If you're still hungry for more true crime, check out my podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week I break down the latest true crime podcasts or hottest true crime-related TV shows and more. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on The Innocence Files. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>